We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Hi, this is Jim Lyon. I'm your host here at All That To Say, which is an intersection of life, culture, faith, of ideas, a safe place to explore what it means to live in this, the 21st century, and what we can do to change it for the better. You're in for a great conversation today. And before we dive in there, I just want you to know, if you ever want to know what goes on behind the curtain at All That To Say, send me an email. <laughs> all you have to do is address it to all that to say at chog.org. That's all that to say at chog, C-H-O-G dot org. The guy who's laughing at me right now <laughs> has, uh, has earned the cred to do all that laughter at me because he's my friend. His name is Jeremy Dixon. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. It's so good to be here. Thanks hey, for no, having me. It is so good <laughs> to have you here. Now, people often say it's so good to be here at the beginning. We'll see what you say at the right. end. But so but far, have, so good. I have so much faith in you, though. <laughs> So oh, much faith. Same back at you. Jeremy Dixon lives uh, far away from this studio where I'm seated in central Indiana. He calls Los Angeles home. How long have you lived in L.A.? So I'm, I'm 42, and with the exception of one year, I've lived in L.A. my entire life. So, I mean, that's home. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Los Angeles, of course, is a place of energy and uh, talk about the intersection of life, culture, ideas. Uh, it, it's all that. Yeah. And you've grown up in that world. Uh, but you grew up in a, in a world that was framed by church life. Sure. Your dad was a pastor, a very prominent, influential voice. Mm -hmm. His name was Greg. Tell me about Greg Dixon. Uh, my father was the quintessential servant. Um, he had an interesting childhood, uh, was plagued with a number of physical ailments. I think that shaped a lot of the way he saw the world um, because of the loneliness associated with staying in hospitals for long periods of time. Um, being disconnected, having to kind of remain calm because of his heart condition. I think he had a deep compassion for people who were walking through difficult seasons. So he served people well. He loved deeply. He had enormous amounts of grace, um, a deep sense of fortitude. I think because of his, you know, early childhood near misses with death, um, he valued life, you know, at just a high level and had a deep sense of fortitude. Once he decided he was going into ministry and that was going to be his life's call, like he threw all of himself into that. And so he was funny, he was a musician, he was uh, a great orator, he was a great leader, he was a man of compassion. So I mean, obviously I'm his son, so I all the great stuff, right? You're a fan. <laughs> exactly, I'm his <laughs> biggest fan. I, I talk about him often. I actually watched uh, one of his sermons this past Sunday before I went out to preach and uh, was just, I'm in my office raising my hands, eyes full of tears, listening to him teach. Because he was still moving you. Yeah. I mean, and that's, a, it's fascinating, right? 10 yeah. years after his death, and this sermon probably was seven or eight years before that, you know, and I'm in my office listening to this on YouTube and just being completely touched by what he was saying, still being shaped by the principles he lived by, the things that he taught, his fidelity to the word and to God is amazing. And your pastoring, you are now the pastor of yeah. the place that he once 
was the pastor of. He, he was the shepherd, now you're the shepherd. Yeah. You followed him. Mm -hmm. How does that feel? Uh, it, it feels, uh, I guess there's probably a convergence of feelings. You know, um, I remember early on, I remember the first time I had to walk out and stand where he stood after his passing to preach. You know, and at a certain point in the sermon, weirdly looking at my hands while I was preaching and like noticing how similar they were to his hands. Yeah, you connected to him. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I'm I'm not into the whole spooky stuff of, you know, whatever, but there are moments when you I think because of my life with him, I'm I'm feeling his presence while I'm sharing. And there are moments where I actually filter some of my responses or decisions through the lens of what would Greg Dixon do? Like, how would he respond? How would he feel? What did I see? So I think I have, while I don't have him here as a person I can tap into for information, I can go back and pull from the things that I watched, um, the path that he took, the things he didn't say, the way in which he moved and utilize that to kind of lean into my own personal call and responsibility. So it is, it's so, and then it's, it's kind of bittersweet because then it's like those tough moments, you know, the person that I leaned into is is not here. So then there's that level of uh, complexity. But all in all, I'm very grateful that I have the chance to serve in this capacity. And I, and I have the predecessor that I did have who I think gave me a wealth of information and even some of the soft skills to kind of navigate the complexity of ministry. Now, this church in LA mm -hmm. is, a, is a thing. In other words, it's a church <laughs> of substance. I mean, there are all kinds of churches. Every sure. church has its own merit, of course. Sure. This is one that has a, a core critical mass that uh, is known. It has a long history with great leaders. Before mm -hmm. your father, there yeah. was another great leader there mm -hmm. named Ben Reed, someone I also yeah. knew, giant. who was a, a giant, mm -hmm. really. And not just a giant in the sense of the local community of church life, but at the larger stage of life in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You're growing up in that world. Mm -hmm. Did it ever occur to you uh, as a teenager, as a young man, you think, oh man, I'm gonna do that? Or did you say, no way, I'm not doing that, I'm gonna choose a different path? So oddly enough, and I'm not sure this is everyone's testament, but a lot of children of pastors have said, this was the furthest thing from our mind. Like we saw all of the elements and so. So for me, it was similar. You know, Early on, I wanted to go into law enforcement you know, two things. I want to go into law enforcement and I wanted to be rich. Like those are the two. They don't always work together, but. Right? I don't know how I was going to bring those two together. But you know, when you're in elementary well, school, you know. Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, the year my father was installed as senior pastor, which was 1996, uh, Bishop Reed, um, who was his predecessor, took an office that was down the hall. One day I'm in his office and I couldn't tell you why I was there in, in Dr. Reed's office. And he reaches across the, the desk from 16 years old, reaches across the desk, he lays his hands on my hands and he says, you know, Jeremy, you're the next pastor of this church. Mm -hmm. So my father had just been installed that year and Bishop Reed was already prophesying <laughs> that I was going to succeed him. And certainly the timing was a surprise to us, right? I thought it wouldn't be as soon as it was. But, you know, having that in the back of my mind while- You accepted it? I, I think I- it was it was, again, it, it, was Dr. it seemed Reed. plausible. It yeah. did. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know, and I think between the fact that I had such a reverence and respect for Dr. Reed and his prophetic gift, and then all of the things that I was doing were pastoral things. You know, I'm in the youth ministry, they're like, hey Jeremy, why don't you share a word? And I'm like, why? 
and I would be the one that spoke yeah, or right. said something. You know, right. so I had all these elements emerging without any like formal, you know, responsibility or sanctioning that just were naturally a fit for pastoral ministry. So it kind of made sense. Well, I'm hearing you say that as you kind of got your feet in the water almost randomly from your point of view, mm -hmm. you also found it fulfilling or it satisfying. I mean, it, it, it pressed some buttons, I thought. It yes. is. Yeah. Uh, I can do this, and, and it feels good, like the right thing mm -hmm. for me to do. It was a moment, I tell this to people all the time, there was a moment when it felt like it was the only thing that made sense. Of all the pursuits that, that that exist, of all things that I maybe could have done, ministry just felt like this is the only thing that makes sense for me. All of the gifts and talents or ways of thinking or modes of operation, like all of it leads toward just being with people, leading in some way, trying to navigate and negotiate big ideas that are going to impact the world, to see the kingdom's consciousness expanded. I mean, I just, this is what just was invigorating for me. And I'm like, well... Guess the rich thing and the police thing is out of the question. <laughs> Neither of those are working on this. Although sometimes, come on, you wear a uniform and police your crowd, don't you? No, no you don't. I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> okay, but so here you are as a pastor, yeah. and you've stepped into those shoes. Your father did pass away suddenly 10 years ago, and you found yourself with a knock on the door from the local church. Yeah. Jeremy, come home, help us. Mm -hmm. And you have, first up, what's the best thing? about being the pastor? What do you like best? <laughs> um, this is gonna be so strange, because I don't think this is the good answer, but I'm gonna tell you the truth. So I was in a session with- Jeremy, Jeremy, yes. the truth is always a good answer. Okay, all right, I'm gonna tell you the truth. <laughs> I was in a session and I was listening to Dr. Ron Fowler talk about his retirement. And he said- He was a pastor, a prominent pastor. Yes, prominent pastor in the Church of God movement, a great friend of my father, you know, incredible leader. And this man, I mean, he, he was, you know, I mean, you and I know him, just an incredible thinker, incredible leader, incredible teacher, just in all kinds of ways. Anyway, at this session, he said the thing he missed most was the children. Mm -hmm. And it just fascinated me, like of all the things that you could miss. Yeah, you couldn't have predicted kids, it. Couldn't have predicted it. And, and that to me, oddly enough, I love casting vision. I love mobilizing people toward a common idea and seeing the maturation of some initiative. I love traveling the world and, and preaching and teaching, and but it's the children. For some reason, the children um, is, for me, I think when I'm done, I'll probably say it's the thing that I'll miss the most, is to see. So this past weekend, we had our, our church picnic and a new family was there. And the father came to me and he brought his son who couldn't have been more than maybe third or fourth grade. And he says, you know, Pastor Jeremy, I, I think you need to meet this kid. Something, okay, well, yeah. sure. And he said, because uh, this is my son. And I can't remember his name right now to say to save my life. He said, but he said, my son would rather be in church with us than in children's church. Mm -hmm. And he takes copious notes and we discuss them after church. And he said, and it's amazing for us to see this young guy who prefers to hear you teach. And I thought, and, and so there are stories and examples of just seeing children and their faith come to life, That's right. their development, them navigating this really, really complex world right now and having a heart for Jesus and then being able to enjoy, I think, a church that leans in to understand that they exist and we attempt to like program to that. So mm -hmm. that's what I think I enjoy most, just seeing the, seeing the kids. Well, I mean, I get that. I, I 
I was a pastor for some years, mm -hmm. and actually my wife and I were just out at the Cheesecake Factory in Indianapolis, <laughs> and this gal comes over to serve us at the table. She works there, and she goes, Pastor Lyon? And I said, well, yes. And then she describes to me how she grew up in our church, mm -hmm. and then she pulls out this imitation of me. Like she... <laughs> she she can, she can like love to see form, this. form words and put a phrase together like I did. And, oh, she, and she's God. laughing. It made me laugh too. But the idea that you can influence yeah. someone yeah. so yeah. profoundly over a lifetime is no small thing. It, not at all. Not but now, what's the, what's the downside? The part of being a pastor that you think, oh, man, do I have to really go for that? I think the hardest part of pastor, pastoring for me has been, um, well, one is, you know, frankly, when when a big idea doesn't pan out the way you want, yeah. you know, especially, especially when, you know, you put your heart and soul and you feel like you've done all the things, you know, I think sometimes we don't talk enough about sometimes things just fall apart. You know, I think that's it's hard for us to wrestle with. And the truth is when that happens, as much as we get on stage and we say the right things and put on a stiff upper lip and we try to, you know, give context and all that. The truth is it hurts us like it hurts everybody else. So as a leader, that's always, that's probably been been hard when it just doesn't work out. And we tried, we gave our all, all and, you know, we say the right things, but we, you know, we in private have to kind of cry it out sometimes. And the other thing would probably be when our intentions are mischaracterized. When you you're know, misunderstood. Misunderstood. Yeah, I get that. Leadership, you know, you have to make a lot of hard calls and you're having to navigate a lot of sometimes competing interests. And, you know, sometimes you have to make a call that that is, at least in your estimation, with your prayer and your, you know, the council of, you know, advisors and whatever that process is, you make the call that is unpopular. And, and it's not so much that people don't like it, but when they mischaracterize your right. motivation sure, sure. or some, you know, that part is... They read something between yeah. the lines that isn't there. It's hard. And it's hard. <laughs> that's that's I, hard. I, I, I can hear you there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're talking a lot about church life and the pastoral role. Many people listening today may not connect to that at all. They, sure. They're thinking, well, they know about churches. They know there are pastors. Mm -hmm. um, the world has changed. A, a church's place uh, on the corner doesn't mean the same thing that it might have years ago when I was a young guy. And and you're living in Los Angeles, mm. where where the world is always like 15 steps ahead of the rest of the world. In other words, where, where LA is today is where the rest of the world kind of follows up mm -hmm. in the next year or so. And in that environment where the world has changed, where the pandemic has shut down churches and then people don't get in the groove of actually showing up and so on. How are you experiencing that? What do you think? Uh, you're now the pastor, you've lived through the pandemic age, you've lived through tremendous stress mm -hmm. uh, in the country over the last few years as a guy up front. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I, I think that we have been afforded an opportunity to rethink some of the rigidity that we have enjoyed, honestly, mm -hmm. um, where there is, I think, the pandemic and other events have introduced this level of fluidity in the movement of people, the thought life of individuals, their emotional state. Um, just there are a lot of variables now. And with that being the case, you know, when you have this 
enormous increase of variables if your mindset is you know concretized around some rigid way of seeing the world or yourself um, you're not going to necessarily be able to have the dynamism that you need to to navigate this new space and so for me um i i was on a panel um a few maybe a month and a half ago and i was saying you know, what the pandemic did for us was cause us kind of like shrug our shoulders more and say look we don't have all the answers and we're going to extend our self grace and we're going to extend others grace and we're going to allow for our thought life not to lose hold of the fundaments that we find in our faith not not in that way but methodologies and delivery systems and the way in which we engage with others has to be much more intuitive it has to be much more um gracious we we have to i think we're having to in, invest in a new level of curiosity and holding space is a big phrase that everyone's using now holding space That's for right. people and so i think you know like you said la is interesting la is you know been called the, the melting pot which it is la is very vibrant and colorful and la um i'm not sure how to characterize it but i call it like the flip-flop rebellion where <laughs> where there's this like this cool breeze anarchist kind of mindset out there. Everyone's cool and flip-flops and cargo pants and everyone's, you know, laid back. But there's also this kind of against the grain, against, you know, counterintuitive, countercultural kind of mindset. So if you're gonna be, if you're gonna have any level of success, you're gonna have to be able to navigate that well and to find personal balance in chaos and to offer balance to people because they're navigating a lot of chaotic thoughts and feelings. And so I think for me and for many folk, probably all across the world, you know, they're having to to rethink kind of, you know, it's like, okay, let's, let's, I do believe we ought to, I think chaos causes us to certainly hold the horns of the altar. Like we got to find those things that shall not be moved, right? And we hold fast to those things and then everything else is up for grabs. We say, okay, let's talk about everything. Like these things are are fixed, but all the other things, let's talk and figure out how we navigate this new reality. I, as I'm listening to you, Jer Jeremy, I'm thinking about um, the development in our culture around us and things that used to be kind of taken for granted in church life. Mm. And again, I was a pastor for 42 years. Um, they, they don't exist anymore. Mm. I used to go to a hospital, and if I was a pastor, <laughs> then that made a difference. I could get that yes. parking place nearby. Not that it was important, but I'm just saying there was a yes. certain kind of cognitive recognition in the mm -hmm. culture that, oh, there's a role for you to play. But that's all kind of evaporated, I think. And then there's this whole idea of trust. I, I'm so struck by, we live in an age where people don't trust anything, yeah. really. I mean, we don't trust the news, really. Yeah. We, we don't trust our doctors. Think about all the drama about the vaccine for yep. the pandemic and everything, and, and medicine has kind of been blown up. Everybody thinks they can go online and read some post and become an expert, and yep. so we don't really trust the experts. We don't trust our courts. Mm -hmm. We're not sure the courts are really doing it. We're not sure we can vote. We're not, we don't trust our electoral process. I mean, you just go down the line. We just, we just don't trust. Mm -hmm. And I think churches aren't maybe altogether paying attention to this. Churches as institutions are in that same boat. Mm -hmm. People are not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. In fact, they may be hostile right. because there's a certain conspiracy theory meme that's taken over people's thought life about everything. Yeah, yeah. And so that means that church life, 
uh, you know, you can have your people circled in a wagon, the ones that are the remnant, mm -hmm. but for the church to actually be salt and light or to have impact, we have to address the trust issue. Yeah. Now, I'm kind of leading the witness here because <laughs> you have described your your pastoral ministry in words like, oh, you, get, you love mobilizing people, mm -hmm. uh, you love you know, seeing something come to pass, uh, getting and engaging and changing the world and all that. Those are, those are external yeah. calls. How do you think we can do that in a world where nobody trusts us? Yeah. What do you think as a, as a church leader should be going on to build trust? Yeah, so you, you, you said it best, we have taken for granted like this space that we once occupied, where there was this level of, you know, almost this level of default consciousness around who the church is, who the pastor is, what we do, who we are, that whole thing. <clears throat> so I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is our privilege, mm -hmm. you know, and we have to concede that we have to work now. We have to make a compelling argument. We have to showcase. We have to assume that people are not, uh, not, only, not, on, not only not religious natives, but not Christian natives, and don't have the same assumptions that we might hold. So that requires us, it's like, like in a conversation. Like if I am having a conversation and we have like a similar um, lexicon, there's certain assumptions I make, and I jump to certain ideas very quickly. Knowing that we we kind of share certain you know you know ideas, when I know that we're not coming from the same space, there's a level in which I go amplified Bible. You know what I mean? I'm I'm adding three or four or five different extra words because I have to make sure because mm -hmm. I we can say the same word but not have the same definition. So I don't make that assumption anymore. I also, so let me just kind of as a as a, just a prerequisite, just saying, look, when I show up in a space, I show up saying. I recognize that I'm going to have to work a little bit harder, mm -hmm. right, and have to be conscious of who I'm speaking to, and 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 re recognize I don't I don't have the privilege, right, of you kind of get where I'm coming from. Number two, we have to lean into the trust conversation. I don't think there's anything wrong with directing traffic and saying, "Hey, I recognize that there have been things that have happened in our culture." perpetrated by people who are under the same banner and brand as me that have in some way impacted your faith in what I represent in the space that I come from. I get that. I've been hurt by those things and even go further. And maybe at some point I've been the perpetrator and I need to beg forgiveness to say, look, I, the light got brighter, Church of God phrase, the light got brighter, you know, and I realized that I may have gone some, you know, alternative ways, but I'm growing. And so that humility I think is endearing to people and will invite them into a space to at least give you their attention long enough for you to make a compelling argument about Jesus. So those are my thoughts on that. Well, humility is kind of the missing feature of a lot of <laughs> religious life, isn't it? It's so easy, yes. And, and, and learning how to, to own your truth, sure, but humbly acknowledging yes. this mm -hmm. is where I am yeah. without trying to make someone else feel diminished yeah. uh, is a big piece of it. But we live in a world that, you know, all this polling suggests people are anxious about the future. Yeah. You know, they're not sure where, where are the answers? Who's got the answers to the questions of our time? Can anybody really solve this mess? And truth be told, I don't know that the whole package can be solved, but can I do something? Yeah. Back to church life, building mm -hmm. trust. I know that you leading your local church in LA 
have stepped into some maybe unconventional areas for your church. Mm -hmm. Your church wasn't always thinking this way. Sure. To help problem solve mm -hmm. on a broader scale. You're, you're working with kids, but it's not just about your Sunday school. Mm -hmm. It's about kids who never darken the door of a church yeah. through foster care. Yeah. Tell me about that. So um, that's probably the premier, in my estimation, I mean, if I had to kind of vote on what's most important. Well, it's hey, probably the, you got the microphone. The, right, the premier <laughs> aspect of our ministry is the work we do outside of our uh, outside of our, our the proverbial four walls. And um, you mentioned one, and I'll, and I'll give you a few. Um, one that has been a, a huge, kind of maybe the, even the flagship of our of our you know, neighborhood work has been foster care, like child welfare. And the way in which we started in child welfare is kind of twofold. One was uh, my wife and I, Adrian and I, kind of had this epiphany, you know, about about ten years ago about fostering ourselves and wanting to give children stability. And and our our plan was always reunification, like give them stability while their parents, their biological family, were able to work things out so that we can put place them back in the home. So that was all the plan internally. But then as I was kind of navigating this as an individual, I thought to myself, like, this needs to be like the mission, right? There's this, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, but there is a, a quote by Julian, I think the last emperor of Rome or something like that. And he talks about how, he's talking about how uh, there are many who are being led away from the pagan gods that that they serve into Christianity. And he says, it is because of how they care for the orphan. And the poor, like he's so he's like he's acknowledging yes that as a powerful instrument absolutely, and so I, so I've often said like you know I know we're going to have great preachers and teachers and theology whatever but man I think one way to really see culture shift it is the way in which we love people tangibly, and so we we kind of just went to our DCFS which is our Department of Children and Family Service and just said look. Uh, our campus is open. Whatever we can do, however we can serve, we, I had no strategy. I just showed up and said, we want to be a blessing. We'd like to host some things on our campus. We'd like to send volunteers to various things. We'd like to help with unification. We want to be a visitation site. And so little by little, as we kind of just presented ourselves as a, a, a resource, not with some highly drafted business plan, just mm -hmm. we're here, whatever you need, we're going to figure out how to show up and serve. And that became um, a really great relationship that we have now with DCFS. We co-founded an organization called 3FN, um, Faith Foster Family Network, that is a coalition of about five or six churches now who partner up to do collaborative work around child welfare. Um, we've become a visitation site. We've hosted a fatherhood program on our site. We have a teen club on our site. Um, I mean, you name it. We just kind of leaned heavily in. And here's what we recognize, and the data bears this out. Almost every social ill in our country can be traced back at a high level, as far as the pipeline is concerned, mm -hmm. to children who grow up in places of instability. You know, the prison population, poverty, drug addiction, sex trafficking, you name it. The, the And I hate to say it this way, but like the... The petri dish, the place where that is being developed, the laboratory for all of that. Absolutely, it's children who are vulnerable, children who are vulnerable, and don't have anchors. And so my thing was, I said to our church, like, look, and I, and this is, I mean, not a direct quote, but I said, look, if you want to take care of poverty, you want to deal with drug addiction, you want, if we want to have an impact on culture, we have to do something to help provide stability and safety and love for children who come from hard places. And if we can do that, we can see other things shifted in our culture, and we've. 
you know, we just kind of went in on all in on that and have been blessed. And that led us into dealing with human trafficking mm-hmm. and let us dealing with, you know, so so I think yeah. we've just kind of like expanded. But it all started with us saying we've got to care for kids. Well, how, how do the people at the State Department of Child and Family Welfare oh. receive you when you walked in, though? I mean, did you? I mean, it's like any yeah. relationship, I suppose. You yeah. kind of go from neutral or <laughs> right. or did it did it start cold? How, how did so. Um, to be honest, here's a, the interesting thing. The reception conceptually was actually really good. Like they they were they were interested and grateful. You know, we have the largest population of children in 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 um, in, uh, in foster care in the entire country. What's it in like? LA. In LA, yeah. right? In LA County. So you figure in California, it's like sixty thousand kids. We got half in LA County. I mean, not big California. That's right. So I think that the conceptually, ideologically, they were like, yes, the problem was logistically. That's been the challenge. The challenge is that a lot of government agencies um, don't necessarily have the dexterity, don't necessarily have the, they, they, they're having to grow and how they to build. Have the flexibility. Yes. Mm-hmm. How to build the relationships. How, and so well-intended. So they're trying to figure it out. They're doing more now in the last five to 10 years to make that a reality. But early on, you know, it's such a big department, you know, um, that was where the challenge came in was just, okay, how do we make sure that this is sustainable? How do we make sure it works? What are the rules? How do we guard against proselytizing? You know, I mean, there are all kinds of things they were kind of concerned about, rightfully so. Um, and then DCFS has its own, you know, navigation of its own complexity that it's trying to work through. But ultimately, everyone that we dealt with, all the RAs, the regional administrators who are over the various, like, areas, even recently I had a meeting with the new director and very gracious man, excited about our partnership, you know, you know, enthusiastic about what the work we've already done and us going forward. So that's that's been great. It's just been how do we get it done? That's been really hard. So they've been receptive. Yeah. And here you are years into it. Yeah. And you're seeing good fruit. Mm-hmm. And your church, let's talk about that crowd, yeah. because a church that may not see that as part of its calling, like, wait a minute, yeah. that's somebody else's <laughs> job, or hey, sounds like a good idea, but that's not our core mission. Yeah. Did you face any of that, or did you have to thread that needle? So I we we didn't face any of it um, like as a frontal like um, you know issue as much as we probably faced it in the in the way of support. Mm-hmm. So there was some when it came to hey we need you all to volunteer for this or get involved with this or even the recruitment strategies of us getting more families to jump in to not necessarily just be foster parents but to serve as, you know, we, we call them like, you know, the village. So, hey, you're not going to be a foster parent. Maybe you can sign up to be one of the caregivers who could do respite care. So I think that that maybe was a little challenging, but overwhelmingly our church, because it has a history of service under my father, under Dr. Reed, there's just a history of serving the neighborhood and loving people well. I think the heart was there to do it and there was enthusiasm about it. Um but from time to time, you know, when it it's personal, you've got to like do something more, 
<laughs> you know, but personally. Also you're describing a church that had a culture pre-existing of looking outside its front door. Absolutely. That, that set you up yeah. to take some of those bold moves, but yeah. still risky. Yeah. You uh, step out, knock on the door of a government agency That's or right. someone that doesn't know you and so on. Yeah. Uh, take, thanks for taking that. Now you're wearing a sweatshirt that says Misfits. I am. And I know that that's not just like random. That, it's that random. Misfits is a, well, it's, it's a vocabulary. It's a it brand is. that yeah. you're developing in this church because you do have a passion to make a difference. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy, that's part of what I respect so much about you is you're not content to simply uh, just keep everything in its place. You're, mm -hmm. you're willing to push out farther. In fact, I'm going to even quote back to you something I heard you say a couple of years ago in a meeting uh, where you said how drawn you were to science fiction or how a science fiction <laughs> idea is like, it just yeah. blows your mind up because it's yeah. so out there. And yet that's what actually grabs people's attention yeah. and buys the future. In other that's words, right. to get people to really invest themselves, mm -hmm. you have to have a science fiction-like idea. Yep. I'll never forget that. It was yep. a great, great um, vocabulary to describe the necessity. If the world is to be better and if we're to be instruments for the good in it, mm -hmm. we're going to have to do some like way out there stuff. Now, brings it back to misfits. Mm -hmm. Misfits is a word that, you know, originally I think first in hearing that would say like, uh, <laughs> you know what, I'll get my car and drive by right. that one. And right. yet you're actually promoting misfits. That's right. So what do you mean by that? What's so, going on there? So to take a step back, the quote that you're mentioning, I did um, at a regional convention, and it's a Sergey Brin quote. And he said, um, if what you're doing doesn't sound like science fiction to some, it's not transformative enough. Mm -hmm. And that just rocked my world. Um, because the tendency is to not seem delusional, is to not seem crazy, is to find ideas that are palatable. That are um, predictable. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of like you want to be able, you know, if you want to scale, if you want to, you know, whatever, you got to get buy-in and stuff, whatever. Um, but it just spoke to me that um, the people who I know through history, I mean, even with, I mean, I'll even talk about you with what you've done since you were arriving to, to this post, some things you did were science fiction. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, before you did it. Maybe that's why they call me Darth Vader sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> For my audience. <laughs> but, uh, I, I sit in a chair uh, leading a, a group of churches mm -hmm. uh, in this country called the Church of God. And so that's what you're referring to. Yeah. When I came, I, I took some chances. You did. That's right. Some big chances. Yeah. And so, so with that... <laughs> So, so from that being kind of a personal um, ideology, I thought what I kept finding was there were more and more people who thought like this, more and more people who had maybe what seemed like delusional or science fiction based ideas about the future, especially when it came to the kingdom. People who looked at transformation and culture through the lens of a myriad of, of platforms and modalities, people who understood the power of preaching, but the power of media. And they understood the power of the, the altar call, they understood the power of technology, and they understood that there was a way in which you had, um, recently you had a gentleman on here uh, by the name of Alan Swoop, who's a Christian hip-hop artist. And this, this incredible guy, his mother um, was a pastor who also passed away, a good friend of my father. And Alan, you know, has leaned fully into hip-hop culture through the lens of the kingdom, and I think is probably rapping to more people than I'm preaching to on a Sunday. You know what yeah, I mean? Right, right. So I kept in, I kept encountering all these people. And for me, what it felt like was the people who were thinking like this were not necessarily being included in some of the institutional conversations. 
um, felt as though they were a bit kind of out of the, you know, out of the the core of things, but they were the ones with the best ideas. They were the ones with the most progressive ways of saying, like, we can attack, you know, this concept of kingdom expansion and its consciousness through a myriad of different ways. So I thought it would be really cool if I found a way to, number one, uh, build coalition, get them in their various places in the same place, um, find ways to uh, legitimize that, hey, what you're saying is absolutely crazy, but that's what we need right now. <laughs> we need now. some more crazy Exactly. Time. It's legitimate, right? <laughs> yeah. And then to find ways to help to, to add intel, to find, you know, there's some creative people. Oddly enough, so, you know, we're part of the Church of God. You have this great program that we run in the Church of God called C4. Chapter four, Institute. chapter four Institute, where we're, we're helping to coach and encourage uh, Christian leaders to think about ways to impact neighborhoods and do things that are going to be revolutionary for those that are around our congregations the whole night. It's a great, great program. We're in we're in Boston. And in fact, this is where Misfits, the conference came from. Mm-hmm. We're in Boston. We finished teaching that day. We're in a restaurant that night and we're sitting around and there's, you know, a guy by the name of Ben Sand from Portland. There's uh, Natalie uh, Royer, who's from, from Indiana, and also Kim Majeski, who originally from Nashville, but is also from Indiana now. And we're just cogitating around these revolutionary ideas of how to change the world. And I thought to myself, though, I wish that that conversation was a podcast. Because it was some of the most, in my opinion, groundbreaking thinking. And I'm not tooting our own horn, but it yeah, was but really progressive. It was progressive. Really dynamic. It was so dynamic. And it, and it was like a cosmos. It was expanding as you're talking. Absolutely. And yeah. it was organic. Yeah, yeah. It was organic. And so I thought, okay, we need to bring this conversation into more public spaces because there are people who will hear this, the frequency of this sound, it will resonate and they will be inspired to chase down big ideas that will change culture. So that's where the misfit kind of modality came from. Well, misfit implies people, ideas, things Mm -hmm. that don't fit in the conventional trajectory. That's right. So now you actually stood up a conference called Misfits. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, so who shows up at a misfit? <laughs> Do I need to like get shoes that don't match or what? <laughs> the misfits conference. Uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a story in the Bible um, where uh, there is the, the scene emerges where Jesus is in this house. He's, he's teaching and um, there's no room left in the house, right? No one else can fit in the house. And, these men bring, or these individuals bring their friend to Jesus. They notice this, so they tear up the roof, let let you know their friend down before Jesus. The Bible says uh, Jesus sees the faith of this gentleman's friends, and then he goes to work, right? And I argue it's interesting to me that the people who brought their friend to Jesus, while they put their friend in the house, they stayed outside. And there's this, there's this benefit to being an outsider, to, to not fitting in to the spaces that everyone else, because proximity does not necessarily mean intimacy mm-hmm. or understanding, right? And so the Misfits Conference is this, this in my opinion, dynamic place where we really kind of just took some wild angles. We in, introduced hip hop, we introduced creative elements, engagement, um, you name it. And then um, brought in what I feel like are some of the most progressive thinkers in various spheres of influence and asked them to teach and talk about how the individuals who are looking to be market disruptors, change agents in whatever sphere of influence they're in with a kingdom backing, 
to help facilitate them thinking strategically about how they can navigate, you know, this culture in a dynamic way. So, for instance, we had Ben Sand, who runs the contingent in Portland, um, doing some incredible work. We had Nate Parker, who is in film and television, who I think is one of the foremost thinkers around how to infuse faith creatively in media content that is you know, going to touch the globe. Uh, we had a, a, a kingdom finance guy that was there who talked about money, strategic alliances and tactical ways in which we can think about money. And we had Kim Majeski come talk about, uh, she's, uh, so I, I asked Kim Majeski, I said, Hey, I would love for you to come to do the Misfits conference. And she said, Misfit, I'm a woman in ministry. I've always been a misfit, right? <laughs> I'm always the outside. I'm always, ball. right? Yeah. So, so that's, so the conference was in my mind, I wanted to, I wanted to break the parameters mm -hmm. that we kind of are thrown into allow people to think broadly about what a world could look like where their crazy ideas could be put into market to shift culture and then to give them this new community of people who could who was who were speaking their language who could help, you know, that iron sharpens iron, helping to kind of cross pollinate each other. So that's the Misfits Conference. We're doing another one coming up, but it's it was, it, in my opinion, and through all of the surveys, it was a wild success, man, because people really felt like they were encouraged and also had the intel needed to do something unique in their particular, you know, market. And I'm hearing you say that the presenters mm -hmm. are people who, in a way, are misfits. Absolutely. On the front edge of kingdom life yep. of Christian and gospel yep. ministry. They, they don't fit into the Absolutely. pigeonholes. Yep. The people who come to sit in the chair and, and hear them mm -hmm. may not be misfits mm -hmm. by definition, but are challenged and dared yep. to step out of the pigeonhole. Absolutely. And there you find it. And would you say, I'm again, leading the witness, I suppose, predicting your answer, but I mean, would you say that it's going to take misfits more of us becoming misfits to actually impact a world that has been turned upside down in the last few years. Absolutely. I think, and, and it goes a little bit back to what you said earlier, I think there is a profound lack of trust for the experts. And I think there's, there's this level in which a misfit who steps in, who's not necessarily saddled with a lot of the baggage of institutional places are going to come in and they're going to have more of a voice. They're going to have more audience with people um, because they don't they don't have the fear that, hey, you're tied to X, Y, Z. Um, I think also misfits are needed because misfits, in my mind, um, do a couple of things. Number one, they have a higher level of velocity when it comes to decision making and taking action. They're individuals, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, the gentleman that runs Amazon, I'm losing his name Jeff right Bezos. Now. Jeff Bezos has this great quote about the velocity of decision making. He's like, look, make decisions with like 70% of the information. If you're waiting for 100%. You, you never get there. You're, right? You're, and you're going to be late. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Um, so that I think misfits kind of have a higher velocity of decision making. I think misfits have a higher level of curiosity. So, you know, think about like skunk work, they're willing to get an R&D in a different way and fail fast, fail big, they have a high tolerance for pain in that way. Mm -hmm. And so those individuals are going to, I think, have a large level of success. I think misfits are also people who recognize, who are, who are not as um, encumbered themselves by the, I'm going to say this right, because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to 
disavow tradition. You know what I mean? There's something very, very important. And in fact, a lot of the proof of concept comes after you've been able to show, you know what I mean? So I don't want to act as though like, hey, everything has to be unconventional and throw tradition out. That, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is people who are able to leverage tradition, right? It's a different mindset. And those individuals are able to lean into tradition as a floor, not a ceiling, Right. Mm -hmm. To yield from it, you know, whatever whatever elements can be useful to take the next step. So I think the culture is it responds well to that. And now here's what's crazy in both negative and positive ways, because we've seen people who, who had really negative agendas who are misfits that have really impacted culture negatively. A lot of influence. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> That's right. So I think it's I think it's a very neutral concept. So what I'm trying to do is say, look, there are enough negative misfits in the culture. Let, let's try. Let's harness some of <laughs> right. heaven's That's business right, right here. Yeah, That's yeah, right. And do, and do you think, as I'm just listening, uh, and my mind's running wild, uh, churches, mm -hmm. which are institutions in the sure. main, or I mean, they're, they're established at some level. Maybe the, the best way forward is for churches to be anchors in a world of misfits. Absolutely. Where, Absolutely. where they become the stage. Yes that welcomes and encourages misfits. Mm -hmm. But the misfit by himself or herself is not really able to achieve unless uh, you've got the Starship Enterprise. Absolutely. You're not going to be able to go to, out to the ends unless there's a, a stable basis. Hands down. And there's where you are. Am I hearing Absolutely. you say that's, that's I mean, where the church you lead wants yeah, to be? Think about it. This whole misfits concept and con conference is held at the Center of Hope Church in LA. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, 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 yeah. so I feel like what I what I'm what I'm advocating for, and this is what I would love to see all around the, the nation and the world. I'm advocating for the, the church is the greatest delivery system that the world has ever seen, in my opinion. Now, mm -hmm. there's some things around segmentation, there's there's some errors, there's some issues there, right? But as far as what the core meaning of what Jesus meant. Right. So here I love, I love Jesus when he's talking to Peter and he says uh, the whole exchange about who men say he is and who do you say I am? And then, you know, and then he says, upon this rock, I build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And I always I used to reason that like the gates of hell and I have, you know, sermons about, you know, hell won't stop what we're chasing down. And then I thought, I think there's a deeper meaning here that when he says the gates of Hades, he's talking about the place of death that death won't even stop. So even his own death, mm -hmm. what will happen though, that there'll be a delivery system shift, whereas Christ was among us incarnate, and then when he dies and rises again, now the Holy Spirit lives in us. So same power, different delivery system, and over the course of time, as the ways in which the church has existed changes, the core of the gospel and its efficacy and its purpose will not change, but the packaging will. So death of an organization, not death of the movement of the momentum of the gospel. So for me, I'm saying if churches in this new iteration could see themselves as this place, this laboratory, as you said earlier, of creating, of of making sure there's sound biblical understanding, um, their spiritual formation, like all of those things that they're sending out, these incredibly top-tier catalytic leaders who are changing culture, but they are tethered to the mothership, right? The church that Jesus said is never gonna die. Even if it changes, 
what I'm saying is never going to die. Let's stay tethered to that, but get out there in the world and let's shake it up. You know, you just named your church, and I wanted to be sure we got that name out there, Center of Hope. Yes, Center um, of Hope, L.A. You're, you're, you're down the street from the Forum. That's yes. It's been all been rebuzzed. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the greatest in, team in the history of all teams in Los Angeles Lakers. That's, that's what you believe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard of that. Have you ever heard of the Seattle Supersonics? Oh, I guess that's old news. <laughs> Okay. Your listeners who are under the age of 30 have no idea what you're talking hey, about. <laughs> Jeremy, I'm a misfit. Okay, come on. <laughs> All that to say, you are you are you are at an intersection. Yeah, SoFi right? is right down the street. Now. I mean, you are right there, you're near the airport, LAX. That's right. That's I mean, right. There's so much coming and going. Yeah. You are the center of hope. Yeah. That's the name. That's right. That's on the front door. And and in a world where there's so much tension, I mean, mm -hmm. we have a polarized world we live in and and i'll have to say even in my posts i i grieve so much mm -hmm. the way which the church uh community the the faith community i love and to which i've given my life is right yeah. now so polarized by five or ten different subjects yeah. maybe a hundred yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how to how to how to help mend those wounds the kind mm -hmm. of raw and open gaffes mm -hmm. that all said you are a black man i am and you live in a neighborhood that has been through several changes. Sure. It was a, a white neighborhood, it was a black neighborhood, mm -hmm. and it's a Hispanic neighborhood, and it's mm -hmm. a black neighborhood, and there's some Asian and mm -hmm. A to Z. And then we have so much racial tension. I mean, it's one of the big, uh, what I would say, monsters mm -hmm. that fuels so much division and angst and anger and frustration. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm saying that to say, Jeremy, you, you move seamlessly. You are who you are. You own who you are. Mm -hmm. I've watched you work a crowd. I've seen you speak. I've, I've listened to your wisdom. Help us understand where you come from. What is your life journey in the United States, mm -hmm. in LA, as a 42-year-old black man who's navigating a world that's not just black? Uh, one of your challenges in your local churches, it's not just about black folk. Mm -hmm. how, do I, how do I build bridges and yet still remain true? How do I help become a healing bomb? Also, how do I become a misfit mm -hmm. to make things better or different? Mm -hmm. now, yeah. One more prompt. Sure. Uh, when Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. became a, a phrase, you know, it's an organization that owns the name, but also it's kind of a phrase that describes a bigger concept. I remember being powerfully moved by something you said, almost inadvertently. You, you talked about the Declaration of Independence, about mm -hmm. all men being created equal, mm -hmm. and how you'd grown up with that. Mm -hmm. Until the day came when you thought, are they talking about me? Yeah. All right. I've opened up a, a barn door here. <laughs> oh, my Lord. What do you want to say? Come on, pull it out. You're, be, uh, be that misfit guy at my microphone. Yeah. So I think you asked a, a very complicated question. Um, because the truth is, as an African-American man, the reality that I wrestle with being a student of the gospel and the life of Jesus and the reality of having to navigate what is what are natural responses to to everyday microaggressions and everyday realities of inequities and injustices and what would emerge as a natural response, even if it's not my response would not be naturally hostile, it would be naturally distant. And knowing Reserved. Yeah. You know, my 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 the the natural recourse would be to remove myself from 
whoever they are and whatever that is. And then we have this message of incarnation where Christ is like, lean in. You know, and the truth is there are there have been seasons over the past three or four years where those two have been like distinctly disassociated, where I knew what I was supposed to do. And then what was emerging every day was this reality of, man, this this has just reached a fever pitch in my lifetime, which we know that historically there have been much more critical times, you know what I'm saying, in our country when it comes to race and the oppression of people of color in general, black people specifically. But in my lifetime, if there's this fever pitch that we feel like we that I reached or we reach, and the natural inclination was disconnection, was distance, was this is its safety, pres- self-preservation. This is a dangerous world. I'll just withdraw. Absolutely. Um, and then you have the gospel, and the gospel is like, you know, <laughs> lean in, you know, connect, you know. And so I think for for me, you know, sometimes I think we can be a little. I think we can be a little dishonest as human beings, particularly when it comes to like, you know, clergy or even Christianity, where we're not we're not truthful that yo, there are times when I was like, or in and I hate to say this, you know what I'm saying? It's gonna be online forever, but there were times when you heard phrases like burn it down and something resonated. And you know it wasn't something from heaven, right? So I'm not it's right? not that it's right. Exactly. Oh, I get that. It yeah. it resonated like like the 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 you know, so my point in saying that is simply to say, um, what I've had to do is I've had to think about the fact that, that tension is not one that that's going to be solved or necessarily should be solved, as much as there's this level in which incarnation does require confrontation. But how we confront and how we deal and how we step forward and how we have conversation, how we hold accountable, you know, has to be through the lens of the life of Christ that we saw and the one that lives in us today. And so for me, you know, so so I, after the Roe v. Wade um, uh, decision, that very next Sunday, I was starting a series um, called Soul Food. And so my very first sermon, while it didn't, I think, I'm not sure if it was intended to be this direction. It, it just kind of got co-opted a little bit. I talked about it. It was called Incarnation. And part of the conversation was, you know, um, in moments like these where we're seeing such division around that topic, around same gender topics, around race and equity, around criminal justice, like there are a number of things that the world and the church are fiercely divided on. Part of the idea is how do we sit in a space and as I said, the, the magic phrase now, and hold space with curiosity for someone who's on the opposite side. And that is hard. And and we, and let me say when I want to say it's hard, because I see people do it all the time and it's disingenuous. It's not real. You see it on television, you see it in churches, you see it all over the world. People are like, they're pretending to be in the space. And the truth is a lot of times it's not authentic. It takes a lot of intestinal fortitude and I think spiritual grounding to sit across from a person who not only holds a value system that's antithetical to yours, but is perpetrating realities that are actually impacting you and to find ways to pull the layers back, to get understanding, to recognize there are narratives that are feeding or motivating this way of thinking and to be able to like empathize. It's hard. It's really, really hard 
when you when you feel as though you've been on the losing end of that person's activity or way of thinking or rhetoric. So for me, um, it is I'm a work in progress on that. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a work in progress. I wish I could say I solved it. And I got to a place of, you know, of nirvana, you know, say to use a, you know, but I wish I could say that. But honestly, the path for me has been trying to put myself in those positions, those situations, those conversations, understanding my narrative, my experience, what I have lived and to say, OK, but there there's value in that person's experience, their narrative and where they come from. And sometimes um, it is willful and rebellious ignorance. And sometimes um, on both sides, I want to be very clear sure, about sure, that because sure. I, I, I don't want to show up saying like I've got it and they don't, you know, yeah. on both of our sides. And sometimes for both of us, there is just we just didn't get it. We we were taught, we were raised, right, we were right. led. We were, I mean, you the the formation of our minds around the age of four, you know, what I'm saying have have impact for the rest of our lives. So. For me to think that someone is going to quickly be able to disassociate from something they have lived in the formative years. In, of the, in a way, subconsciously. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that that has been, I'm just being really frank with you, man. It's been hard. It's been hard to say, you know, it's like when, people, when we talk about, particularly in the holiness tradition, we talk about like buffeting the flesh or like that's oftentimes associated with like sexual sin or uh, or some other vice. But buffeting the flesh when you want to lash out with righteous indignation. When, because you feel like you've been wrong. Absolutely. And having to be like, well, I got to just I got to just take a deep breath on this and figure out how we get to a better place. Because the truth is, and here's what people, you know, you hear all this language around, you know, this like the hostility and the engagement and what could be a civil war. Like you hear all this and I'm like, people are throwing these phrases around as if real people don't die. <laughs> Right. You know, I'm conscious of the power of words. Right. And so I have to be careful. I think about it with my family. There have been times when I had to be careful because what I feel, believe, or, or my maybe short temperedness could impact them negatively. I could put my children in harm way if I'm not conscious right. and poised. And so and, it's, it's and difficult. when you say you don't realize they're walking away with something that you didn't imagine. Absolutely. That's going to frame them. Yes. Because in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, I guess I, I so appreciate your your respect for story. I think yeah. what you've described peeling layers away. Everybody has a story. Don't everybody they? did, and we we don't often we don't often acknowledge another person's story that yep. has framed them and peeling the layers of our own story so I can understand mm -hmm. myself before I lash out at someone else. Yep. And all of that is a part of the incarnation. It's yeah, I mean, it's really rich uh, theology. Yeah, but I also want to just go back a little bit to. The, the black guy growing up in L.A. Mm -hmm. I'm a white guy who grew up in Seattle, mm -hmm. so you know that. Uh, and and many I've heard it said, you know, what's the problem? You know, like this old news, this, this racial tension is a is like yesterday's headline. Why are we still talking about it? Because for some people who didn't experience deprivation or or being pushed to the curb sure. or haven't microaggression is a term. Yeah. You know, they're not conscious of it or haven't seen it or haven't felt it. They think that while that may have been a real thing a long time ago, it's not now. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that? <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> well, I would say I, I nope. Can, <laughs> there you go. Because I could say something, but people look at me and they don't hear my words the same right. as they might yours. You yeah. say nope. No. Because 
in your experience, your journey, and yeah. it's your story. That's right. No, there's a real there's a real challenge here still today. Yeah. I oh man. So so I think that so I, I was reading a study, uh I want to say nineteen sixty-five or sixty-eight until right now, the wealth gap is exactly the same. With all of the efforts and energies and all of the marches and all of the positioning of people in places of governmental power and all of the excelling of 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 special people of color, largely the financial, socioeconomical um, place of African American people is exactly the same. You know, remote, you know, I think there's something to be said about about that. And there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, there was such a tone deaf response to the unwarranted killing of African American men, in particularly, when it comes to their um, engagement with law enforcement. There's something to be said about the fact that the criminal justice system has some elements that are seemingly engineered to impact people of color in ways that are distinct and different than our white counterparts. There's something to be said about the fact that we are continuing to see, you know, I, I was looking at a report recently about a fa African-American family that by changing the race of the homeowner was able to, you know, gain a higher value on the sale of their home. Like these things and that are happening, it's something to be said about what we've been seeing in with the killing, you know, um, of those nine African American people having having Bible study. Like, like this stuff and the way that that harkens back to a time before me of church bombings, mm -hmm. when a young man walks in there, you know, and takes those lives. And so there's so much happening in our culture, and there seems to be silence from some of the appropriate parties, namely, I think, in some of our church and religious spaces. There seems to be a level of um, aggression or hostility toward the idea that systemic racism still exists. Um, I won't get into specifics on names, but they're high, highly influential people who Use, utilizing their platforms to create, I think, or to help um, promote ideas that are more divisive, that have people of color on the losing end of some inter interactions. And I think when you start to look, go down the path, you know, my thing is this, we talk a lot about reconciliation, and I think that's an important construct and conversation. But you got to have confrontation first, and I mean that in the most, um, you know, legitimate definition, not hostile, but just confronting issues. Speaking it out loud. Absolutely. Yeah. And having a level in which we say, okay, this, that. even when it comes to what it seems to be in certain spaces, an attempt to remove certain aspects of history from our history books, because it creates a level of guilt in, in young white minds like this, these things are real things happening in real time right now. Um, and it's problematic. And, and, and so for me, as an individual, this is my story. And for me, one of the things that I'm advocating for is like, I can stand on the mountaintop and I can declare these things. And, 
Um, and to your point, there's a certain level in which I will or will not be heard. But there are some important people in important places um, who this is their time. This is this is their time to step up and to say, hey, you know, these things. And it's so funny to me because I think part of the challenge is there may be fear that if an individual cops to the fact that these things are problems, that they are maybe are self-incriminating, which is not the truth. Something can be an issue without you being an issue. Right. And so being able to disassociate those things and say, look, these things are happening in our culture. We need to talk about them, we need to deal with them, we need to create platforms and methods for us to strategically get out of this, out of this, and I don't have to walk around with personal guilt, you know what I mean, uh, that will keep me from speaking out against what's happening in culture. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, this is as much a problem now, um, I think, as it was on some level when they were, when we were as African Americans attempting to fight for certain justice and equity in the sixties, you know what I mean? I think it's, I think it's, this is the time because we're, well, we're going backwards in some ways. There may be some legal frameworks that have been changed and altered from the sixties and all of that protest. I mean, there are sure. some acknowledgements in the law, sure, absolutely. <clears throat> but I'm hearing you say, and this is the point of my question, Jeremy, is to hear your story Yeah, is that you're 42 years old, you've lived your whole life in LA, and you've lived a life of privilege at some level. Your sure. father was a prominent pastor, yeah. and you yep. have a platform. Uh, but for all of that, you still, you have felt it. Sure. You would say, honestly, yeah, I, I understand why some people get really hot about this, yeah. because I can too. Yeah. I mean, I was pulled out of my car. You know, I was yeah. pulled out of my car, placed on the side of the road. My car was, was um, at that time, was searched without my consent. I've experienced, you know what I'm saying, um, as an African-American man, even having now, you know, in, in my case, to your point, you know, of privilege, in my case, well, we had resources. We had people we can call. I can call my congressperson. I had them on my cell phone. I mean, we had things that we could tap right. into to help resolve it. But at the point of impact, I was experiencing the same thing as a young African-American man as anyone else was experiencing. And sometimes I think what people don't take into account sometimes is the ubiquitous nature of being the other in a culture where there is power held in a majority space. Mm -hmm. It is not, it is not so much there have to be these audacious pronounced elements, but there is this, this sense in which you know that you are a part of another person's world and that there are elements in which that emerges and arises effortlessly because it is an, it is a subconscious understanding that America belongs to a certain set of people. And then those of us who are not of that majority group are a part of, and it's when you hear the language of, you're not gonna take my country, you're not gonna replace us, you know, this existential threat that some feel relative to America. So that I, falls on you differently than it's falling on somebody absolutely. who never thinks about uh, being absolutely. in the minority. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, you know, have been reading the headlines. I'm a news junkie, and there's mm -hmm. an awful tragedy in Bend, Oregon, just not long ago, where a guy walked into a Safeway store and yes. started shooting up. Yeah. And a very brave Safeway employee who was a retired veteran working in the store tackled him and saved who knows how many yeah. lives as it was. Three people died. That's right. Uh, you know, this kind of gun violence that we see across the country, this kind of random uh, acts in soft targets mm -hmm. like a supermarket. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I couldn't help read that story with horror thinking about what it's like when I go to the supermarket. But then all I can think about is that supermarket in Buffalo mm -hmm. where you have nine people shot dead. But the difference is, I mean, they're all horrific sure, tragedies. Sure. But in that case, the shooter was 
straight up. Targeting. I shot them because they were black. That's right. That's right. I never think about being shot because I'm white. That's right. And that's that's part yeah. of the the reality sure. that I think you're reflecting on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that even goes into like the gun debate. And I feel like let's have the gun debate, but let's not have without recognizing the deep, violent history of this country to recognize if you remove guns, they'll find something else. Because the issue is violence. The issue is that, you know, there there is this what feels like a spirit of just wrath that permeates certain spaces that will manifest with whatever tool of violence is available to us. So I'm not saying don't have the gun debate. I'm just saying, though, if we have it thinking that if we remove guns, it solves the problem. I'm not sure that's the answer. We've got a heart still in place. Absolutely. Well, and it could be a hundred subjects, hundreds maybe to overstate it, but there are sure. key subjects, debates going on in our world where there's so much anger, yeah. where there isn't yeah. much listening to someone else's story, but yeah. there's a certain sweeping away of judgment yeah. that makes it difficult to get somewhere better, yeah. which I guess brings me back to the incarnation, this theology that mm -hmm. you hold. Do you have an idea what... The church, you're a pastor of a church. Mm -hmm. uh, how does it become incarnate? Mm -hmm. How does it address those big issues? I've heard the foster care, what a great insight. If we can get kids yeah. uh, stable, the chance of the next generation being a mess up is less. That's right. Are sure. there other things that you think of a church? Or, or looking at a guy like me, Jeremy, mm -hmm. what's going to say to me? Uh, Jim, this is what you need to be doing. Yeah. I think that for us, we've kind of... We've kind of built our, so our mission statement for our church is closer to people, closer to God. And the concept really is like, there's this power and proximity. And I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to like oversimplify it. At the same time though, I think, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us is probably one of the most powerful statements in all the Bible. Because it showcases the one who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, soiling himself with the brokenness of humanity um, because he had a heart for people. And it wasn't just that he had an idea about their future or he had a concept or a strategy, but he held place like he he dwelt, he moved in some trend, he moved into the neighborhood, right? And I think that for many of us, this is what's happened, the polarization of our country, the division, the fact that these algorithms are leading to levels of specification that put us in these categories that I think are leaning into more of this disaggregation of populations. Well, you like this, we're going to give you more of this that really helps to concretize this over it here. Feeds your narrative already. Absolutely. Doesn't persuade you to think differently. Right. Does it introduce right. diversity? And what we know about... We know about civilization, even when it comes to like the environment. Biodiversity is what makes the world right thrive and flourish. When you begin to remove certain aspects, there's an ecology that's disrupted, right? The ecosystem's disrupted, and then you don't have the flourishing that could happen. There's diversity that's that's at play. So what's happening in culture is things and people are moving further and further apart. The church, I think, has an opportunity to find ways to move people closer and closer together. And when you talk about algorithms, you're talking about, for instance, just in social media or if you're on Facebook and you like this or that, then the algorithm <laughs> feeds right. you more of what yep. you've already expressed, that's right. which is what's 
which is diminishing your access to other points of view. That's Hands the idea, down. right? Hands down. And then we we kind of accept what we see on the yep. screen without yep. questioning it. And the more content we receive, the more it reaffirms what we've already concluded. Right. And you're saying the church yes. actually needs to be a different channel. Absolutely. It has to lean in. And I and I wanna just I wanna I wanna push the envelope. Lots of, we say diversity in church, we're talking about black and white typically. And what I'm saying is we have to lean to diversity on a whole nother level where we have to say, we have to be so comfortable with um, the presence of the Holy Spirit that we are not rattled by dissent. That's what happens in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Churches here or since someone has an opposing or, and, and instead of leaning in to say, okay, let's unpack, let's talk, let's discuss, let me listen, let me have humility, we'll shut it out. You know what I mean? And when we shut it out, it, it doesn't allow for us um, to have the type of beloved community that's able to grow and thrive because the truth is, if, I think about even some of our orthodoxy that we enjoy now. I mean, everything, not everything, well, everything that's normative now was at one point pioneering, right? Mm -hmm, right. Let's think about orthodoxy. Some of our, our most, like the hypostatic union, the doctrine of the Trinity came from conflict. Yeah. It wasn't like someone had an epiphany. It was conflict, conversation that then provided, right, this new normative of orthodoxy that we that we live with. I think the same thing is true when it comes to what the, f the future looks like. Unless we're able to bring people to the table, that's what it's got to be. Always to the table. Uh, we're angry, come to the table. We're hurt, come to the table. We're, you know, we're confused, come to the table. Let's not leave this table. And then as we, I think, exemplify that internally, it will then, I think, hopefully, as we become ambassadors, lead others who are not a part of our faith tradition or tribe to also see the benefits of coming to the table. We invite them to the table. And I think we see something great come from that. Well, as, as you talk about coming to the table, I think about all the dinner parties Jesus went to. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's I mean, right. Who's, who's he sitting How was he not fat? I just don't get how he wasn't enormous. The amount of times well, we see him at dinner on. parties. I have not seen that digital photo of Jesus, so we just don't we know. Don't, we don't know, right? But but the idea is that he was he was hanging out with all kinds of people. Oh, His was a very diverse very crowd. Very diverse. Talk about misfits. Yes. And the establishment. Yes. And people with opposing points right. of view. I mean, look at the twelve disciples. Yes. It's, it's quite a diverse group. Yeah. In terms of thinking. Yep. And why don't we do more of that? Yep. That's where the church can be. But I think people are sometimes get so here's here's the thing. The great thing about Jesus is not that he of all the great things about Jesus, right? So I'm gonna say that right. But it was that he was not intimidated by what association with the other did for him in the mainstream. Right, right. He didn't worry about compromising his message because he was seen was Absolutely. So, so and so. Absolutely. Yeah. He just was like, all right, you know, I mean, I know this being with you is going to start, you know, the yeah. the Twitter verse, you know, yeah, but, but hey, it's Zach, okay. has come down out of the tree. That's I'm right. Ha I'm having dinner at your house. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I love, so I think that we could maybe take a page out of that book, and it's hard because, especially now with social media, because yeah. the minute you're associated with someone or they see, then it's like, Everything that that person may carry or experience or walk through, now you're saddled with that, and you have to have enough intestinal fortitude to say, well, that's okay, because this matters, you know? I know who I am. That's right. And that's who right. I am. All right. Random questions. Sure. If you're going to watch TV, what do you want to watch? <laughs> uh, I'm going to watch New Girl, <laughs> strangely. No. Or I'm, I'm going to watch New Girl or Ridiculousness. There you go. Yep. Uh, that's where you're chilling. Okay. If yeah. you 
Good movie. Best movie you've seen lately. Oh, lately. Or anytime. Favorite. My favorite movie my, of all time is Boomerang with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> of all time. Are, are you kind of... I have some reasons behind that. My yeah, favorite yeah. movie of all time. I know. I'm just thinking you're, you're too young a guy to be hanging out with Eddie Murphy. Exactly. But, but yeah. All right. If you're going to listen to music, what do you want to hear? James Taylor. James Taylor. That's my favorite artist of all time. And why? Well, give me a song. His story. Oh, I can give you a thousand songs. Fire and Rain, mm -hmm. Copper Line, uh, uh, Something in the Way She Moves, uh, a Traffic Jam. I mean, you name it. Like I, I, I love stories, as you mentioned. I'm just a huge fan of stories. And James Taylor in his baritone folk style yeah, tells yeah, some yeah. of the greatest stories and, and that's how I actually fell in love with it. I, he sang a song on Saturday Night Live one time. I was like 15. And he sang the song, uh, uh, Secret of Life. Secret of Life is enjoying the passage of time. I had never heard of this man before. I watched this on Saturday Night Live and I thought to myself, I'm going to get all of his stuff to see what else might be good. And that was, it and was a wrap. The measure of its greatness is it still lives. It still it's lives. Still, it's still fresh. I go to his concerts and he yeah. wears the same outfit and sings the exact same way. <laughs> to this day. <laughs> and if you're going to go for a restaurant for food, what kind of food do you want? Um, so I think that, that Mexican food is God's food. <laughs> I think that of all the cuisine, God handcrafted Mexican food. I love Mexican food. But I'm still a steak and steak and potatoes kind of guy. Oh. So I'll, I'll hit up Mastro's or something like that. You know. So if that's there's anywhere point. in the world you want to go, where do you want to go? Oh, I've been a lot of places. I, I would love... I think I want to go. I've been to Africa a, a lot. I've never been to Nigeria. Mm -hmm. I want to go to Nigeria. What is it about Nigeria that draws you? Everyone I've met from Nigeria has, um, I haven't met a lot of people, but the ones that I've met has just this strength, um, this mental fortitude, mm -hmm. um, this progressive. Like it's just I, I'm fascinated by the people, you know. Yeah, when I'm yeah. in other parts, when I'm in Southern Africa, I'll I'll meet someone or they'll talk about Nigerian people, and they're just like they're some of the greatest, most brilliant people right. on the planet. And so I just want to go there and breathe the air. I, I, <laughs> I hear it. That's awesome. Yeah, Jeremy Dixon, I am so thankful that you're here, and I'm so thankful that uh, you're the misfit uh, <laughs> that also fits in yeah. everywhere. And uh, thank you for just sharing a bit of your life and your journey and some of your insight with us. I promise you, every time I'm in a room with you, I'm better. <laughs> I really am because you make me think. Hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you. So this has been good being with you, man. All that to say, Jeremy Dixon, you're the man. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say it out loud. So you are I'm, it. I'm going to take that clip and just <laughs> use it as my intro wherever <laughs> I, I go. I, okay, how about this? I want to grow up and be like you. There we go. I'll take it. I appreciate that, man. It's been great being with you. Godspeed. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.